Hey, Jesse. How's it going? Been pretty busy, to be honest. Oh, yeah? What's going on? I just got back from my first ever book burning. Oh, wow. How was that? Great time of year for it. Yeah. It, it really, the paper and cardboard burning just feels so nice on a crisp March evening. But yeah, so, I mean, you heard about this Dr. Seuss stuff, right? Oh, yeah. I couldn't miss it. Yeah. So uh, certain Dr. Seuss books, like Horden Hears a Jew and One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Jew Fish, at the time, these were acceptable. Now uh, they're understood as pretty racist. So you know, I'm a little disappointed about that. I was just about to order Horton Hears a Jew uh, for my um, for my ne- for my nephew. He's a Holocaust denier. He's three, and he's a Holocaust <laughs> denier. And so I was hoping it would give him some perspective on uh, you know the, the Jewish people. Uh, when the Jew whispers sound financial advice into Horton's ear. <laughs> I found that it was troubling, but it was also inspiring because he's just like invest in index funds. It was nothing flashy. It was actually good advice. Uh, Yeah. You know what? Advice, no matter where it comes from, you got to take it. So the book burning was basically to to burn all the racism in these old books. And I realized that any book read to me when I was a child is probably full of dangerous ideas that could turn children into little Nazis uh, like your nephew. So I basically just went uh, to my hometown, got all the books my parents read to me as a child, and I I burned them. And I feel really cleansed right now. I hope that you took some photos of that for the internet. Of the burning, yes. Yeah, yeah. I started a whole website. Uh, It's a list of of books we burn and books we should burn. And it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, this is great, Jesse. Uh, This seems like a really great way to spend your time. And I hope that your own book uh, ends up in the pile someday, too. Oh, it will. It's horrible. Of course it is. I'm kidding. Publisher, hey, just a, to my publisher, I'm joking. Everyone should pre-order the quick fix. And don't burn it. Or you can burn it, but just pre-order it first. I, I honestly think if you can get someone to care enough about your book to burn it, that's sort of a marketing coup. This is unfortunately not the sort of book that makes like such a provocative cultural argument anyone will burn it. Although maybe the social psychologist I criticize will be infuriated enough to burn it. Jesse, it's 2021. You never know. You never know. Uh, Katie, what is the name of this ardently pro-book-burning podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And today, what are we talking about today? Remember when we said we weren't going to talk about the New York Times anymore? Right. That was right about the same time we said we weren't going to talk about race anymore. Yes. And if you are a listener who expected us to keep these promises, you know what? Screw you. Yeah, screw you. We can't do it. We are going to be talking about the conclusion, possibly, of the Donald McNeil saga. So this is something that we have talked about in, I believe, the last two episodes of the show. Donald McNeil, for people who don't remember, was a a veteran reporter of the New York Times. He was there for 45 years, something like that. Started out as a copy boy, as a young man, worked his way up to being uh, being their one of their primary COVID reporters over the past year. And McNeil recently stepped down uh, with a with a gun pointed at the back of his head after some allegations were published in the Daily Beast that he was a big old jerk to some teenagers on a trip to Peru. Yes. Now these were very vulnerable teenagers. Uh, some of them might not get into Ivy League institutions as far as we know. So they were in a tough, tough situation. So we should feel bad for them. But the new uh, development here is Donald McNeil. Uh, He had hinted that March 1st or thereabouts, when he was officially gone from the Times, he would tell his side of the story in full. And he has done so, as one does in 2021, in a series of sprawling medium posts. Right. So we'll post links to all of this, uh, all of these posts in the show notes. The URL is Donald McNeil Jr. 1954.medium.com. Um, I like that he put. That's so awesome. I like that. <laughs> 
Donald McNeil, 69, 420. I presume that that is his age. Um, and you can tell that he's a boomer because he published this on Medium instead of immediately starting a sub stack and making some money off of it. I know. If he had charged for his side of the story, like two bucks, I would have paid that. Absolutely. Um, so as you mentioned, it is sprawling. It is a four-port series uh, clocking in at somewhere around 20,000 words. So that's about a uh, a fourth of a book. Um, he is nothing if not prolific. And he, he tells his side of the story. And it's sort of a, it's an interesting read. It's definitely worth the like hour it takes to do it. Um, it's not chronological, so it's a little bit hard to follow, but he breaks it into four parts, starting with uh, his what happened after he got an email from the Daily Beast. This was on, I believe, on January 28th, asking for comment uh, about these allegations that had been made uh, against him on this this trip to Peru. The trip is uh, something that the New York Times uh, did with a company called Putney and these these very privileged teens, uh, you know, 15-year-olds whose parents can afford to send them on a $6,000 two-week tip, trip to Peru, not including airfare, um, would go on these trips as basically like resume builders. Um, and so just to recap the allegations briefly, the the most inflammatory allegation was that he he mentioned the N-word. And it, this was never that he like called someone an N-word. It was always the the context was always there that he um he 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 said it in the context of like some some kids on this trip asked him his thoughts on a on a case where a 12-year-old girl had gotten suspended from her school for for saying the N-word. Um and a little bit more of the backstory there we know now is that this girl, when she was 12, she and her friend, I guess the girl was was Jewish, I believe, um, and her friend was black. And so they were like sitting on the back of the bus, like taunting each other, like playfully, like calling each other racial slurs, as you do when you're 12, I suppose. Um, I don't know if this is- Or 20. Or, or 20, or on Reddit or whatever. Um, or when you have a podcast and we do that? Thing? Yeah, I mean, actually, true, true. Um, and, uh, and so there was this video was taken of this. And then two years later, the video reemerges. Somebody- Show, passes it around or whatever, and the girl gets suspended from school. He was asked by these students what he thought, and he said the N-word in the context of asking the question, did she say the N-word? So that was the most inflammatory allegation. There were these other allegations. The, the way that the Daily Beast reported this story, it was vague. It said like he made like sexist comments, which is... It's a little bit dishonest because, like, you know that if the Daily Beast actually had those comments, they would have published them, or if they were inflammatory. That was what I jumped on as evidence that the reporting was, like, not there, that they just included that with no context of even attempting to say what they meant. Right, right. It's just, like, allegations were made that he said sexist and racist things. Um, so Don Donald McNeil, and he and also, I, I apologize to him. We have, I'm sure, referred to him as Don <laughs> McNeil. Um, in He's the past, so crotchety. He's so crotchety. He makes clear in, this, in the first chapter of the piece that is always Donald, never Don. So apologies, apologies to Donald for that. Um, but he writes his side, side of the story. Uh, uh, it begins, since January 28th, I've been a jackal circled by jackals. Since not every journalist gets quotes right, on the rare occasions in my life that I've answered journalist questions, I've tried to do so in writing. That way, either they get it right or I can prove I was misquoted. Um, so <laughs> then he goes on this sort of long tangent about the conflicts that he has had uh, within the office. And it seems like they're primarily with editors. Um, <laughs> he, he says that editors frequently uh, 
edit mistakes into his post and he goes on this this tear about about his problem with that which is understandably you know something that you'd it's be upset that happens. it is it is yeah especially if you write in a technical right area. absolutely um i don't think it was particularly relevant uh but he but there's a lot in in these this four-part series that might not be actually be he's relevant. just like very entertaining as like a crotchety old school newspaper type which is a, a species that's becoming extinct that's part of why this is so enjoyable to read right he says uh he says in one place he's talking about the trip to peru and he's says he i think he says this more than once i didn't have a drink the entire week <laughs> which like you can you imagine you're how old is he like 65 ish 1954 oh well we can use his username to deduce his age you're you're donald mcneil you are this this seasoned veteran of of global health reporting you have to go on this trip with these shitty kids and you can't even like Take a, a little nip from a flask after they go to bed. What the fuck? Right. And he obeys the rules. Also, they paid him three to hundred dollars a day. That's nothing. It's nothing. So he says that he did this basically as a favor. And he had done the trip the year before in twenty eighteen and there were no complaints. And he so I guess according to his contract, he uh he gave three lectures. He was there for these different um different sort of cultural events. He was there during meals, and so he gave the same lectures in twenty eighteen as he did in twenty nineteen. He had good relationships with the students. And it was just different this time. Like something didn't go well. I'll, I'll, I'll read you a section from the piece. Obviously, I badly misjudged my audience in Peru that year. I thought I was generally arguing in favor of open-mindedness and tolerance, but it clearly didn't come across that way. And my bristless makes me an imperfect pedagogue for some sensitive teenagers. Although the students liked me in 2018, some of those in 2019 clearly detested me. I do not see why their complaints should have ended my career at the time two years later, but they did. Um, but what really what really stood out to you from this, this, uh, this not may culpa this explanation i i we were both skeptical of the start of the beasts like there were just these sweeping statements that he didn't believe in white privilege uh, stuff like that where it's just like you know there's more context here and mcneil provides so much context in part because he was subjected to an investigation when he got home in 2019 and he had contemporaneous emails and some notes so he gives a much more fleshed out um version of what happened than any of the kids did through reporters. To be fair, none of those kids like wrote a medium post. They they talked to reporters who then sort of compiled quotes, but like in almost every case, these are just fucking political disputes. And it's just as we've been saying all along, or speculating all along, very privileged, very lefty kids who are I don't even know if they were enraged, but they were clearly disturbed by the fact that this older guy had like slightly more nuanced views. I, I think the most like controversial thing he said was something about sort of hip-hop culture but that's like a critique barack obama has leveled if that's enough to get you fired from the times so one thing that was one thing just that like it's insane that this became an hr issue the second thing which is related is donald mcneil told the communications people the times he did not want to just issue a quick pat apology because he thought context was missing from the daily beast piece he offered to provide the beast with all sorts of context the comms team at the times said no I think that exacerbated this tremendously because there's this whole vacuum of context and people just speculated, right? Right. So corporations, institutions do this thing when they're where they're when there's allegations specifically around allegations of HR stuff, where they basically say, like, no comment, we're gonna look into it, or here's a here's sort of a pat apology. What they rarely do is let the person who is at the center of the allegations actually explain what happened. And this is not uh, this is not rare at all. This is sort of standard like like 
corporate communications. And it might be good for the publication. In this case, I don't think it was, but it can be very bad for the person at the center of it. I think it's like a knee-jerk thing that, I don't know, I you have probably gotten a lot of emails from PR people who don't seem to know what they're doing. Oh my God, yeah. I'm not, there are great ones too. Um, there are some very good ones. Like, I mean, I'm not just saying this. The people I'm working with on my book are great and have gotten me opportunities I wouldn't have had otherwise. But in this case, it, it was clear that the Beast account, in my view, distorted things, at least relative to McNeil's full explanation of what happened. Like all these stories were much more complicated and nuanced than him expressing these totally reactionary beliefs. So, you know, also for a newspaper where like the truth should matter and the details should matter, this was all going to come out eventually. I mean, did the paper think this was just going to, I, I, I know that this is a standard approach. I just don't think it was the right approach. So let's get a little more specific here. So like, for instance, in the Daily Beast, they say that students uh, complain that Donald Donald McNeil said that there is no such thing as white privilege. Well, he goes into detail in his explanation. He says, no, I didn't say that. I said that. And he says that he lived in South Africa during the 1990s. So he is very, very much aware of, of white privilege and how it works in the world. But he says white supremacy and white privilege exist in different ways in different institutions. So there's a difference between, you know, racism in the U.S. Army and the New York Times newsroom and the LAPD. Um, so he's not saying it's it doesn't. It, undeniably true. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, at one point, one of the one of the complaints made, a, made against him was that he made fun of a student's hometown. And he like says that he was like racking his mind to figure out like what this could have been. And he realizes later that it, it was something about like a baseball rivalry, like a New York Boston baseball rival. Yeah, it was about the Red Sox. Yeah, it- he tells this story about how um, I, I guess this is in Peru. How how all there was this like very high infant mortality rates because um, part of this indi- like indigenous practice was to put cow dung on the stump of a of an umbilical cord after a after a baby was born and it was killing babies. Um, so he also you know he sort of questioned like native medicine and plant medicine in a way that the students found insulting. But his point is like just because something is indigenous doesn't mean it's correct. Over and over and over, there are these accusations that if we believe McNeil's account, and I do, because I don't think he's a liar, and I don't think he would fabricate with this much detail and this much honesty about what he... Jesse, who are you going to believe? The, the <laughs> New York Times journalist of 45 years or a 15-year-old who who goes on a Putney trip? It's just like he... In- it never made sense that a guy who had reported on dying AIDS and cancer patients wasn't able to sit through a touristy shaman ritual without doing something so offensive that it warranted an HR investigation. And sure enough, we get the details. And I mean, you and I could go on all day just going through every single example of how, how much more detail there is in his account and how exculpatory most of it is. But this whole thing, like, the Times fucked it up catastrophically. People are trying to claim otherwise, but I, I would not want to work for a fucking employer that would treat me like this. Like, seriously, these complainants are the most – it shouldn't – privilege – I don't want privilege to be dispositive here, but it should have something of an impact on how like HR or his bosses look at this when they are in fact spoiled rich kids. I, I'm sorry to say that. I'm not like calling them out by name, but that's obviously part of it here is they felt entitled to not be disagreed with. Right. And the backstory also includes a lot of uh, internal conflict between Donald McNeil and management stemming from 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 uh, union negotiations. Yes. Donald McNeil had like a long time adversarial relationship uh, with with the people the Times Guild negotiates with. And he was a long time 
advocate for better union conditions. He negotiated his own contract with Putney Student Travel because they, they wouldn't even cover the possibility of him having to get medevaced out of Peru, which is sort of ridiculous because that could bankrupt someone. So yeah, part of the context here, and it's crazy that all the supposed leftists and progressives don't care about this, um, is that he was a longtime you know, troublemaker on labor issues. Right. He specifically mentions Charlotte uh, Barrett. Um, she's the associate managing editor for employee relations. So she handled the 2019 Peru investigation, but she was also on the management side when it comes to union negotiations. She also happened to be the current or former romantic partner of a guy named Bernard uh, Plum, um, who had been, uh, he'd been a lawyer for the Times negotiating team. And this is something Donald McNeil writes about Plum. He often spoke to us dismissively. In the most famous instance in return for accepting some cutbacks, we asked for a bonus plan that would kick in when and if the Times recovered from the 2008-2009 the recession. Bernie replied, bonuses? Bonuses are for the people at the top who do the big thinking, not for the people who make the widgets. So... Uh, McNeil had this, he had started basically a listserv, an email list um, about about contract negotiations, and he reported that on his list. And of course, he writes, the newsroom exploded. So he had this, uh, he had this pre-existing conflict with uh, this woman, Charlotte, because of the 2019 investigation and with her former or current partner. And she was, for some reason, tasked with also like handling uh handling the the, the response to the daily beast um the daily beast coverage was she the one who also used the n-word yes she did. <laughs> while sitting next this is no this is like we're so fucking through the looking glass here when it comes to any sense of like consistency or rules or laws in these disciplinary i don't know if it's disciplinary proceeding or like some sort of precursor to it she uses the n-word with a black guy sitting next to her. Right, in the context of the 2019 investigation into his conduct in, in Peru. So naturally, of course, there's a huge blow up and all these uh, time staffers have called for that woman to be fired, right? <laughs> yeah, sure, right. Definitely have seen that, uh-huh. None of this makes any sense. It, it's so disturbing just seeing like an institution throw... Uh, Throw an employee under the bus like that. And and the other the the best line maybe in this whole thing is Dean Bacay telling Donald McNeil that he knows he didn't intend to do anything offensive, but you've lost the newsroom. As though Donald McNeil his job is to make sure the the newsroom, which what percentage of the newsroom are we talking? They like him. And if he doesn't like, if they don't like it, I mean, what is that? What, how do you even interpret that? Yeah. So this is uh, Donald McNeil recounting what Dean Beckett says. He says, but Donald, you've lost the newsroom. A lot of your colleagues are hurt. A lot of them won't work with you. Thank you for writing the apology, but we'd like you to consider adding that you're leaving. Um, so a couple things there. First of all, as Donald McNeil points out, people don't generally get to choose who they work with. <laughs> Nope. Right? That's not really a thing that happens in most offices. Maybe maybe Zoomers do. That could be a new rule. Right. And also, so Donald McNeil makes it very clear here that he was not intending uh, to resign. He wasn't intending to resign. He said that he would apologize, but he wanted to only apologize if he could also add context and an explanation and say, like, I am sorry for people who were offended or if these students were offended. But here's what actually happened. And the Times really refused to let him um, let him defend himself. Yeah. And uh, I mean, which makes some of the context all, all the all the tastier, because like at one point, this one girl he's like getting in a political argument with uh, is very into like Central American policy and American colonialism because she has a Latino boyfriend, which she, she kept bringing up. So, you know, you're the Times 
who are you going to side with? Your reporter of 45 years or the prep school girl who has a Latino boyfriend? Like, she knows her stuff. You know, is he a Latino boyfriend or a Latinx boyfriend? That's uh, that's going to determine my feelings about this. I was like, there were so many moments reading this where I was just like, I could not believe. This is like from some bad novel or something. There are, you can really see the the generational gap when he's writing about his students and when he's writing, um, when he's writing his own account, he, he's really grappling with these questions. Um, at one point he, he poses this question at the beginning of a paragraph, am I racist? And then he, and then he goes into his thoughts about this. He writes, I don't know anybody who hasn't at one point lowered their voice, looked around to see who is listening and then said something unflattering about some other, whether that was based on race or religion or sexual orientation or whatever. That includes people I love. My mother once told me she was in love with a Jewish guy, before she met my father, but my grandfather was an anti-Semite, so she couldn't marry him. My grandfather wasn't a brute or an unintelligent man. He was a real estate developer, so he presumably at least did some business with Jews, but he was a Yale graduate of his generation when anti-Semitism was common. We all sometimes say stupid things or things we thought they were thought were funny, but weren't. I love that he like that, like this man, like he's having this, uh, he's defending himself against, ra- against allegations of racism, but then he also includes a, a Jewish stereotype in there. One that's true, but also <laughs> yeah. a Jewish stereotype. But he he is actually grappling with this. He's saying like, yes, everybody has some internal some internal bias. Which if you if he if he cloaked it in different language, the students would also probably agree with. Um, but he's just like clearly of his generation, and there's nothing wrong with that. Well, but it's not just of his generation. It's also like competing mindsets on the left right now because. You know, when he's asked about white privilege, what you're supposed to say is that white supremacy just suffuses everything. It's like synonymous with American self. Instead, he gives a much more accurate answer that it depends a huge amount on what institution you're talking about. That is a good nuanced repertorial way of looking at the world. It's also increasingly out of fashion in left of center institutions. And part of that is an age thing. But there's also like a real there are real ideological divisions here. Do you think that this story should have been reported in the first place? That's yeah, I think yes. The the existence of an internal investigation about someone of Donald McNeil's stature, I think is newsworthy. I think the editing and reporting the beast did was like pretty messed up in that they they just needed to find a way to like work more uncertainty into the story. They shouldn't have included that throwaway reference to the sexist remark without even backing it up. I think it was written – I don't think it was like they set out to do a hit piece, but it seemed very much geared at painting him in as negative a light as possible without getting further context. Right. I mean putting aside the problems with the reporting, which are pretty obvious at this point, I'm not sure I agree that this was newsworthy. I mean if you just take it on its face, teenagers complain about lecture on on a field trip. That's the story, right? And if the investigation had actually found some pattern of wrongdoing or if there had been some disciplinary action or any sort of evidence that he was actually malicious or even culpable of what he had been uh, been uh, been blamed for, that would have been a story. But just on its face, teenagers complain about old man on a field trip. I don't think that's a story. Well, but people would say that the story isn't the teenagers complaining, it's him mentioning the N-word, which would just recycle the disagreement about whether everyone Everyone already knew you can't even say it. Right, but I don't think that's a story because I don't because I don't see I don't see the problem with mentioning the N word in the context like this. I'm just not sure that this story uh, 
was newsworthy. Um, you know, if the investigation had had found something, I, I would probably feel differently. But if this had landed on my lap, I don't think I would have I would have reported it out because also because you you do need to consider the consequences when you're reporting on something. Um, and should it have been obvious to the reporters at the Daily Beast that this could end a man's career? Yeah, I think it should have been obvious. Obviously, the Times is, is more culpable than the Beast here in terms of their shitty management and their response to this. But I just don't think that this story was newsworthy. I think this whole incident and the fact that this was covered in the first place really tells us something about the media right now and what the media considers newsworthy. Um, and I can think of a lot more shit that I would consider newsworthy than an investigation that finds nothing about a field trip two years before, um, in which some teens complained about a crotchety old man. So I just, this is not a story that I would have covered. What's weird is just like the, the, the strength of the consensus, I guess on both sides now, but like nothing that, to me, what McNeils wrote adds a huge amount of context and makes the decision look much worse. You don't really see anyone switching from being okay with, with his ouster to now having second thoughts about it. It's like it just reinforces everyone's priors. Did you see Jessica Valenti's response to this? I, I thought that was awful, man. What uh, I don't remember the exact phrasing. I remember it made me mad. She said, I can't believe someone would rather write a four-part series on why they weren't racist to use the N-word instead of just admitting they were wrong. He wasn't wrong. <laughs> it, it's just that framing of like, oh, God, Yeah. And anyone who read his four part series and comes away with that, like, uh, there's there's such disagreement within media now of like over everything, even among people who all have similar politics. And I, it would be so hard to work to write about anything controversial while working in an environment with some of these folks. Uh, it's I find this whole thing pretty disturbing. Although I also find it funny, the Latino, the Latino boyfriend. <laughs> Latinx. Uh, yes, once again, this makes me extremely glad that we have extricated ourselves from, um, the, from the media establishment. Okay, can I make one other point about this McNeil thing before we move on, actually? Yeah, sure. So I was corresponding with um, – this guy emails me sometimes. He's a, a black journalist who I just think has smart thoughts on a lot of this. He also has some experience – uh, in media union organizing. So the first thing I want to mention that he said, which caused me to look at this in a little bit of a different light, this was in the context of Pesca. He basically said that his experience as a black person was that like throughout his life at different points, white people have just like tried to be provocative and tried to be edgelords by saying that word around him. He'd had firsthand experience with it and they're always like looking for an excuse to say it, to be provocative. And which, is he saying people in the media do this or like in his high school, in his college? Yeah, no, like classmates and stuff, not people in the media. Um, so this to me did not make me feel differently about the Donald McNeil Jr. situation or the Mike Pesca situation. But he was referring to that idea of like, why are white people always defending this word? So I think that might come from like a separate set of experiences. And I could I could see how that could be frustrating, even if it's not like relevant to these two cases. Have you ever heard a white person use it uh, like directed at somebody? No. The closest is playing basketball. The word gets thrown around a lot with the dropped R. Sometimes I've seen a couple times white people use it in that way. And I don't remember gener like that blank over there should needs to pass the ball more or whatever. But I don't remember it eliciting much of a response because it was very much in the sense of like that dude or that guy. Right, right. But I'm also from Boston, which A, doesn't have black people and B, does have mostly white liberals who aren't like explicitly racist. Have you ever seen it used in that way? 
I have not. Um, no, and I'm from the South. I'm from a very white area of the South, from the Appalachians. Um, there was, when I was a kid, there was one Black student in my, I went through a K-8 school, and there was one Black student. So extremely, extremely homogenous. Um, and the the mascot for my for my elementary school was a, was a Confederate right. general. Um, so I, I think there's... Plenty of racism. I didn't see it um, because I'm white, and and everybody around me was white. But no, I've never, I've never heard like casual racial slurs. Um, some other ones, sure, fag, uh, a lot of that, a lot of fags, lots of dykes. Um, but but not a not racial slurs. Yeah, the homophobic slurs were like totally standard parts of uh, playground culture when I was growing up. I miss that. <laughs> it must have been super fun. Um, Okay, so the other thing this guy said, uh, let me see if I, I could just read this email. Okay, so so we were talking before about the intersection of media unions and social justice things, right? Right. So you have one side that basically sees these unions as not really being concerned with like, you know, working conditions, but really just being ideological, wanting to sort of purge the workplace of of wrong thinkers. And the other side is saying like, well, no. Most of what the unions do is actually like good, useful stuff that just doesn't get attention. This guy wrote, the unions, yes, even these unions overrun with millennials, spend 95% of their time clashing with management over compensation, salary, bonuses, overtime, and conventional protections, disciplinary standards, just cause, severance, non-competes. That's the stuff we lose patience and sleep over. Social justice is an emergent concern for sure, but it's not the monomaniacal purpose that culture warriors on either side would have you believe. The way he explains it, like – People on both sides of this divide on the extremes suck up all the oxygen in the room. So like right-wingers who want to treat millennials as crazy culture warriors are like, that's all the times News Guild does is social justice stuff. And then within the News Guild, there are a few sort of crazy people and they want it to seem like that's what the unions focus on too. So it could be this thing where like these unions are quietly mostly doing normal union-y stuff, but like there's incentives to pretend otherwise. I have a theory. Maybe more of a hypothesis. So I have a friend who works at a uh, major regional paper, and he told me a few months ago that – so he's been at the paper for, I don't know, 15 years, and he's been involved and he's been, on, uh, been a union rep the entire time. Nobody gave a shit about the unions until 2016. Um, and then after the rise of Bernie Sanders, there was this influx of interest specifically from younger people, younger people who had not at all been interested in sort of the boring day-to-day work of the unions prior to prior to Bernie. Um, so I think I think Bernie is to blame for this. I think that or to praise or or to praise. I mean, but here's the thing: I think that what you're having is also this is this is also indicative of this generational culture clash, right? Where you do have millennials all interested in unions for the first time because they're Bernie Sanders fans uh, and who also have this sort of woke ideological politics. So they're bringing that into the union with them. And it can be good that that young people are getting interested in unions and they're interested in labor rights. Sure. But if they're also bringing in this, uh, this ideology that can sometimes be at conflict with, with, with worker rights, well, obviously there's some tension there. Yeah, there is. I mean, I guess also, but isn't part of it just that um, like media is melting down finances wise, and it's becoming more and more exploitative. So 
I'm sure the Sanders thing is part of it, but it also makes sense that now would be the time to try to like grasp onto whatever you can via unionization, right? Sure. I'm not sure that many of these unionization efforts, at least in digital media, have really done all that much for their employees. Yeah. I mean, I guess my correspondent's response would be like 95% of what unions do doesn't ever get much attention. Um, But I do think, right, it would be silly to view it as a panacea given that all these problems are like so deeply structural. Um, Yeah, I'm torn too because I'm very pro- unionization. Um, you know, I was looking more into the reply all thing and I wrote about it for my sub stack and it's just like some of their demands on social justice stuff was, were, were things I would have disagreed with, including what sounded like a system of quotas for the races of voices appearing on a podcast. Like that it could actually, you could, I understand the goal is diversification and we can debate about the best way to bring that about, but like you're really imposing something that could make your colleagues work a lot harder, right? Oh my God, absolutely. I think they also had demands about like 50% of, of people interviewed for for positions needed to be people of color. Um, that's hard to do in this industry. It really is. There are a lot more white people applying for media jobs than people of color. Yeah, yeah. And I like I'm more sympathetic to something like that, but yeah, it's not it's not easy. And yeah, I mean, I'm diversifying especially in radio. I think radio is even whiter than other parts of media. Didn't you say that? Is that true? Oh, public radio is super white. Yeah, public radio. And then there's a lot of uh, that, that is that is that is very much changing. It just for my my position on unions is basically like it works in some industries and it doesn't work in others. My wife is in a union. The union has been mostly very good for her. Um, my brother and my wife are – so he's not – he's in a non-union state. They're both nurses, been nurses for the same amount of time. Her working conditions are much, much better than his and I, that's because of the union. Um, but industries are different. There's like different pressures, uh, different money going around and um, yeah. So what are you going to do when I try to unionize us? I'm going to fire your ass. <laughs> That's literally a leak. I'm going to hire that a is, scab. There are not a lot of – because Matt Brunig always does this, but I think that's literally illegal to say out loud. That's not protected speech. So, all right, Katie, do you have any more opinions on busting my nation union or Donald McNeil or any slurs you want to utter on the radio? I am going to fire you and replace you with Donald McNeil. I think I like he'd be that. good. We should have Donald McNeil on. Oh God, if he wants, if he knows what a podcast is and wants to come on ours, <laughs> we might have, have an a, an a, a complaint to HR about ageism. You guys should read his twenty thousand word opus. It's like again, it would be funny if this whole thing wasn't so pathetic and such an embarrassment for the Times. But dude, some of these kids, like, I'm stealing this from someone else, but don't they need to bring back bullying? <laughs> you know. Okay, so I heard. Uh, Greg Lukianoff, when he and Jonathan Haidt were writing The Coddling of the American Mind, one idea that they decided not to focus on, but he had this sort of theory that one reason we're seeing this emergence and like bullying basically is anti-bullying culture. Um, these anti-bullying messages have sort of flipped the flipped the dynamic of like who's on who's on top. Um, but oh, wait, so the yeah. nerds are exerting their power by bullying? Exactly. That's exactly what Freddie DeBoer says happens in journalism culture, and I think that's true. Yeah. This is why I'll never be at the top of journalism, because I was cool in high school. I was was in the middle in high school, and now I'm a middling journalist, so I guess that makes sense. Yeah. 
Katie, anything else before we close out? Yes, Jesse, we have some exciting news. We are going to do a good deed. What? That doesn't sound like our brand, but uh, I guess we should give it a shot. We might be rebranding if this works out. Okay, so we got an email recently from the creator of a podcast about dentistry called Drilled with Dr. Brady. And Dr. Brady has developed a very cool program to help people in need access dentistry. So even if you have dental insurance probably a lot of listener, of our listeners have gone through this. Even if you have dental insurance, oftentimes you'll find that it's not worth shit and they have a maximum of like coverage every year of like $2,000. And if you have need major dental work, you're going to pay for it out of pocket. Um, so Dr. Brady developed a program that connects patients with dental providers who are willing to do work for free. So uh, we're going to help them find somebody to do some free dental care with. So how it works is you go to halodentalnetwork.org and you can nominate someone you know who needs dental care and they could get up to $50,000 worth of free dentistry. I have like one increasingly fucked up tooth. Do you think I can enter or do you need like a whole bad mouth? I'm not sure, but I hope that nobody nominates you. I hope that they nominate me instead. I need adult braces. Those are expensive. I I do you, I honestly think I might at some point. Are you, do you think you might? I do need them. My jaws are all like, my jaws are fucked up. Uh, my mouth is too small um, and my jaws are fucked up and I need adult braces. And so this is why I uh, I released a, um, a strain of COVID into the world so that everybody will be wearing face masks for the next five years so that I can, I can do this without anybody seeing my mouth. Why don't, this would be so cute and fun. You and me, we, we both, both get, get braces, braces at the same braces. time, and then we do a live <laughs> event, and then we're like, hello. <laughs> that might actually ha- happen someday. Um, so yeah, if you know somebody who needs dental care and uh, could also like use a use a good deed, go to halodentalnetwork.org and nominate someone you know. And just to be clear, the, you found out about this. This is out of the goodness of our heart. This is not anything ad-related or money-related. No, we are not getting paid for this. We are just good people. We are the fucking best. Send us your teeth. Yeah, send us your teeth. Send us your teeth. Also, if you are a dentist and would like to participate in this, also go to halodentalnetwork.org and you can submit a volunteer form. And they'll take donations. Well, thank you for that. That does sound like a really good cause. I hope people will will nominate uh, people who, unlike us, do deserve it. Uh, oh, Katie, I have a, a some bad news update. Uh-oh. So you know the 4.6, 4.7 war over our Apple podcast rating? Yeah, I know about it, yeah. Our men have suffered heavy losses on the front. Uh, they were uh, just walloped by German artillery. We're down to 4.6. It, did the German artillery come in the form of Reply All listeners? <laughs> yes. It actually, well, there were a number of comments that seemed to misinterpret what we were saying and um, – Seemed to think that you and I were particularly enthusiastic about white people saying the N-word. Just because I said that white people have a moral a moral imperative <laughs> to mention the word, not use it, does not mean we are enthusiastic about it. Look, sometimes you have to do things that hurt. Yeah. Um Yeah, so we got we got we got nicked slightly on that. We still have a good overall rating, but yes, we will always uh, cancel culture. Cancel culture. Cancel culture strikes again. We will always appreciate it if you can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can reach out to us at blockedandreportedpodcast at gmail.com, subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash blockedandreported. Uh, my book is out of freaking month from today, which is crazy. It has been like almost a four-year process. The Quick Fix, please pre-order it if you can. We will uh, have more about that soon. Katie, anything else? We have a merch store. I think. Is it still up? I haven't checked in a while. Did we kill it? Nope. It's still up. It's still up. Barpod.org. I am wearing my blocked and reported hoodie right now, and it is very comfortable. 
barpod.org please order stuff uh you and if you want the hoodie it has it has our logo and then it says you know with katie herzog and jesse signal and if you want you can just uh take like a piece of duct tape or a sharpie and you can um, mark out jesse's name yeah also if you put the um the hoodie under an electron microscope there's just this like pattern of various slurs (laughs) knit into the fabric but so small you won't be able to see yeah put it under a black light too see what happens lastly and most importantly if you want to support our podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash blocked reported. Just $5 a month. That's the cost of like what? What can you get for $5 a month these days? Hand job. That's the cost. One, you can give up one hand job a month. Uh, I mean, that's like a down market hand job. It depends on the economy. Yeah. But COVID hand job. For the price of one job, a COVID hand job. <laughs> What's a COVID hand job? They cough on their hand first. <laughs> uh, COVID comes free. $5. $5 a month, you get at least three extra episodes a month. Uh, we just did a really good one on Katie's theory about the genocide of lesbians. Mm-hmm. Not going to explain that further. You're mm-hmm. going to have to subscribe. Patreon.com slash Reported. This has been Blotter Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, as soon as I attempt to unionize, Katie is going to outsource my role to a cheaper South Asian replacement. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember... If you ever lose the newsroom, you can usually find it under a couch cushion.